Good evening and good day, everybody. Good to see you all. Today we are discussing geopolitics and foreign policy, and we have with us the learned Abhijit Ayer Mitra. Abhijit is somebody who needs no introduction. So, welcome, Abhijit. Great to see you. Can't hear you. I can't, uh, your mic is not connected. cannot hear you. It says your mic is not connected. I cannot hear you. No. Okay, let's wait for a few minutes for Abhijit to reconnect. I think he's going to try from his phone. In the meanwhile, let's take a look at who's there. Dungar Singh, Chauhan, Zumuk, Vikas, Tejas, Silver, Kapil, Jay, Debarshi, Arnab, Shail Sharma, Vallabh, Harsh, Rishikesh, Abhinav, Aman, Good to see you all people. Let's wait for a couple of minutes for Abhijit to reconnect. And then we will get going with the discussion. So today we're going to talk about Afghanistan. We'll start with Afghanistan. Everyone is interested in knowing what's happening in Afghanistan today. So we shall start with that. Let's try and understand what's happening in Afghanistan. And then we will talk about some other aspects of India's foreign policy. We will talk about India-US relationship. We'll talk about the India-Pakistan relationship, the US-China relationship, and other things as well. Once Abhijit joins us, let us see. I think he's joining back. Hi, Abhijit. Okay, can you hear me? me? Yeah. I yeah, can I hear you. Can yes. You hear okay, good. Yes, I can hear you. Great, I'm sorry, great. I'm not at home, which is why I'm on my phone. Uh, so it's not my usual setup and all of that. Yeah. No problem. It's working now. So let's go, let's get going. So let's talk about Afghanistan first, Abhijit. So that's the that's what everyone's looking at right now. Everyone's eyes are on Afghanistan. So the situation in Afghanistan, it feels like you're watching a once good TV series in which all of the character development, all of the build-up over the past 10-15 seasons, it is completely ruined by the writers in the final season, in the last two or three episodes. So what has yeah. actually happened? Did the ISI and Taliban actually defeat the US? Or was this all, or did the US achieve everything they had actually ever wanted? What's exactly happened there? 
So it's several different things coming to roost, right? Uh, the assumption always was that the Afghan army had been trained well enough to hold its own. Certainly in terms of equipment levels that we could see on paper, it was perfect. Uh, as long as you prevented uh, a Pakistani invasion, uh, it was just fine. Uh, because, you know, they're good enough to hold back the Taliban. They're not good enough to hold back the Pakistan army with a full-fledged functioning state and a uh, professional military. Now, what's happened is you essentially have a Pakistani invasion happening. Uh, they're not supported by aircraft, but they are supported by all the uh, electronic intelligence, the signals intelligence. Uh, 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 ammunition, equipment, all of that. Uh, you know, I tweeted a video out a week back or something like that, which will show you that uh, some of the Taliban were actually wearing patty kurtas, the, the traditional Pashtun dress, but in patties and things like that, which, you know, the Taliban never wear. So there's something happening out there. All the intelligence I'm getting from the ground, not from the Afghans, because the Afghans tend to exaggerate, but from other people who should know, uh, are also telling me that it is uh, you know, commanded entirely by seasoned old uh, Pakistani military commanders and things like that. So on one hand, there's something like it's not a Pakistani invasion, but it is massive Pakistani assistance and uh, 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 command uh, and intelligence functions uh, that the Pakistanis are providing. The same thing is that the Americans, they planned the withdrawal very badly. Uh, they had, uh, you know, uh, contracted the only attack aircraft that the uh, uh, Afghan government has is the Tucano, you know, the uh, uh, Brazilian uh, trainer aircraft which they use for counterinsurgency. <clears throat> Very effective aircraft, uh, uh, but the thing was they gave out the training to a contractor who hadn't been paid in a long time. So the Afghans can't even get the contractor to maintain the aircraft because the Afghan Air Force wasn't trained maintaining those aircraft and things like that. And, you know, out here, air power rules. Uh, if you have air power, the enemy can't concentrate in numbers. You break down their numbers. So clearly, air power isn't working out here. And whatever strikes America has carried out have been token strikes at best. So that's part number two. Part number three is that the Afghans themselves are at fault. Uh, uh, you know, they've been gobbling away money. They're corrupt as hell. Uh, a, a lot of these battalions and soldiers are ghost battalions and ghost soldiers because the generals would inflate numbers, uh, claim that uh, uh, they had all these soldiers and they needed money to pay them. And, you know, the corruption of the Afghan elite is second to nobody. Uh, you look at Ghani's own nephew. He's been posting images of him flying his private jet, quote-unquote, from crisis to crisis. It's a Gulfstream uh, 5 uh, or six, uh, 5. Uh, you know, which would set you back easily between, uh, you know, 65 to about 85 million, depending on the options uh, you exercise. Now, where did that little took of a boy get uh, uh, that much money? Nobody knows. But everybody, uh, you know, understands who is going out giving out that money. Uh, uh, Ghani is corrupt. He's also incompetent. He won a rigged election. Uh, uh, you know, this was bound to happen because the corruption everybody knew about. Now, we also need to remember that, you know, the last time there was a pull down in things like that under Obama, there were significant reverses. And then, you know, confidence picked up, you know, we can do with, with fewer American troops and let's gain control again. The next thing we need to remember is that, you know, when you say that all these cities have fallen, 
uh, they weren't exactly in Afghan government control. Because, you know, uh, uh, for me, the uh, Taliban control started, I, I, I had to go see the minaret of Jam. Uh, 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 and uh, about 40 kilometers of minaret, that was the end of government control. Uh, about 15, 20 kilometers out of Kabul, when you're going to the Panjshir Valley, that's the end of government control. Uh, Madari Sharif on our way to Balkh, for example, Balkh, you know, where Zoroaster uh, died, where Roxan, the wife of Alexander, was born. It was sacked by Timur, it was sacked by uh, Genghis Khan. Uh, so when we went to Balkh, uh, the first few two check posts outside uh, uh, Madari Sharif were uh, government. The next four or five check posts were Taliban. So, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, uh, even in terms of how close they're coming in, they're only advancing about 20, 30 kilometers, right? So it, this notion that Afghan is falling, if you remember that piece I wrote for Chanakya Forum, I detailed all these things. You know, Kandahar, it's highly doubtful you could have ever said it was under government control because the people hostile and the Taliban were all over the bloody place. Gore and Ghazni, I don't know according to which idiot it was ever under government control. Because when I went to Ghor and Ghazi, it was completely under Taliban control. And yet I read a news about uh, four or five days back, oh, Ghor has fallen, Ghazni has fallen. Speaking, how? Uh, so understand, they, the Taliban haven't advanced more than 20 to 30 kilometers, which itself is significant because the government never really owned most of the countryside. The countryside was always, we went deep into Samagan province, uh, you know, uh, Helmand province and things like that. It was deep, deep, deep Taliban territory. There was no government out there. Uh, there was kind of a negotiated peace in the sense the government would come, then the Taliban would come, uh, but you always had to deal with the Taliban going to any of these rural areas. So, so it's four different things. Uh, the American cock-up, the Pakistani role, uh, the Afghans' own uh, complacency and corruption, and then this misplaced perception that people have that the Taliban were uh, 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 very far away or things like that. So what was the U.S. exit plan? Were they aware that they were handing the country back to the Taliban on a platter? Or was this the deal all along in some way with the ISI? It's very hard to say. Uh, uh, you know, uh, there's Hanlon's razor, right? Never attribute to malice what you can to incompetence. Uh, so uh, it, it's more likely to be incompetent. The important thing to remember is that the Americans are still talking to the Pakistanis. When the Americans carry out airstrikes, they still fly over Pakistani airspace, not Iranian. Uh, so there is that communication on. Uh, Moeed Yusuf, uh, the Pakistani national security advisor, who's a friend of mine, incidentally, uh, was in uh, D.C. just a week back. Uh, so they are talking to the Pakistani government, uh, but there's been no official call made to Imran Khan or anybody from uh, the party as such. So there's, uh, uh, I don't know if the Americans are trying to give the impression that uh, they are boycotting the government, but in private, they're definitely talking to them a lot. I don't know why Moeed Yusuf's visit to Washington didn't make news, but I know for a fact he was there uh, 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 just last week. 
I see. So now that the US has more or less withdrawn from Afghanistan, there are three players left in the game, which is China, Pakistan, and Russia. So what do each one of these seek? What does what are their interests in Afghanistan? We know the Pakistani interests in Afghanistan. They, they seek this strategic backyard. But what about the Chinese and what about the Russians? What do they seek? <clears throat> so herein lies the problem. Each one of them has their agenda. Each one of them is screwing the other over. But each one of the other thinks that the other is not screwing them over. Right. So uh, uh, let me explain. So for example, the Pakistanis, they want absolute control of Afghanistan because they think Afghanistan being the new age mineral uh, uh, paradise that it is, could turn them into a Saudi Arabia. So Pakistan wants control over a lot of Afghanistan's mineral resources. The initial thing why this whole thing started, which was, you know, uh, Pashtun irredentism across the border, uh, that uh, is no longer the driving factor anymore. It has a lot more to do with mineral control and things like that. And a sort of, you know, uh, uh, we won't know how much they wanted to be like a Taliban Afghanistan just to launch attacks on India and not take responsibility for it, uh, which will almost certainly be the case. But right now, it seems to be minerals. Why? Because they realize the Chinese have screwed them over. They're in a serious debt trap. Uh, the Chinese aren't letting them, uh, uh, unlike the Americans who would throw money at them every time they got into trouble, the Chinese don't, uh, you know, give tea lunch to anybody. So uh, they are now in the process of trying to screw the Chinese over out there. The Chinese think they are going to get the mineral rights at Haji Gak and all those other places where the big uh, 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 information age uh, uh, deposits are. Uh, unfortunately, it seems nobody in Pakistan has told them that they're going to keep it as unstable as possible so China can't extract jack shit from there. Uh, the Russians is different. The Russians did this out of schadenfreude to screw the Americans over. The Chinese also did it to screw the Americans over, incidentally. That was one more uh, aspect of it. Now, the issue has always been, if Russia did it to screw the Americans over, they you chose the wrongest person possible. Zamir Kabulov, President Putin's uh, designated Afghan uh, uh, points person, is a ISI agent for all effects and purposes. He's a nasty piece of work. He claims to be, you know, the be all and end all, uh, but he is, uh, uh, people in the Kremlin uh, will tell you that he is a compromised piece of shit. Uh, this is the same man, you know, who's cut India out of the uh, Russian talks that were held last week or something like that. This is the same man who said that, you know, the route uh, to peace in Afghanistan lies through Kashmir. Uh, and the problem has always been we never estimated how uh, uh, dangerous and inimical to this interest this clown was going to be. He's not a clown. Uh, he screwed us over. So he's definitely not a clown. Uh, this man was going to be. And uh, nobody ever raised it with Putin. Nobody ever told them, you need to get rid of Zamir Kabulov or we can't trust you. Uh, and so it turns out Russia has also screwed us over indirectly because of Zamir Kabulov. And Zamir Kabulov would have been implicit in this because this is their big hurrah. They would love, love nothing more than to see a, uh, you know, those uh, images that came out of Vietnam, you know, the helicopter evacuating its uh, uh, embassy folk from the uh, uh, roof of the embassy in uh, uh, Saigon. Uh, they want to see images like that again, which they've got. I mean, a uh, Afghan government falling is a huge foreign policy triumph for Russia.
and they of right. course so, are going to get screwed over in turn because remember terror is uncontrollable the taliban might say we are going to control terror against uh, uighur terror against china they might say we are going to control chechen terror against russia but you tell me abhijit have you ever found anybody who's been able to control terrorists ever we tried you know internally propping up uh, zel singh tried propping up bindran bale uh, as a counter to the akalis how did that end for us they ended up killing the same uh, prime minister that he served uh, rajiv gandhi tried propping up the lgt against the sinhalese and uh, look how that ended up for him so anybody who thinks that they can control terror i mean you know there's only so many times you can make this mistake you can't keep making this mistake over and over again Yes, yes, I agree totally. So now that all this has happened, does India have any role left in Afghanistan, and does this Taliban takeover constitute a future threat for India? It does. It does because remember, in '89, when the uh, Najibullah government uh, uh, started losing ground, when uh, when the Soviets withdrew, well, Najibullah held his own to, to his credit. Uh, he didn't collapse as quickly as uh, this government has because there was a functioning Afghan state at that point of time. Uh, what happened was that they held their own, and all the jihadis that had come to Afghanistan got directed to Kashmir, and that is the beginning of the Kashmir insurgency. Uh, if you notice, yesterday or day before, RPGs were found with Kashmiri militants. Now, RPGs is a whole new level of escalation for these. Militants. they usually given guns or grenades and things like that explosives yes not rpgs rpg is uh, you know it's a traceable weapon you can trace its origin back so it's almost a declaration of war like stingers or helicopters or things like that right so uh, in this particular case there's uh, uh, expect to see a lot more rpgs coming into kashmir i do see a significant uh increase in terrorism in the valley uh so that's uh, one thing that's going to affect us uh quite badly uh our role to play well you know we squandered role i think of all we love talking to other people about not uh having wishful thinking and all that crap ultimately it turns out we're the biggest wishful thinkers around because uh you know this insistence that not on democracy we should have known from day one that the people in charge you didn't need to have elections what you needed was somebody nearly brutal and nasty and uncompromising like say abdul rashid dostam or uh, amrullah saleh or abdullah bala in charge even abdullah abdullah is a very kind man so maybe even not him it, it should have been somebody like dostam or uh, amrullah saleh in charge uh, we didn't we insisted on the sham of a democracy we insisted on uh, weak sold out people like uh, ghani and karzai of course karzai we didn't pick but ghani we supported karzai we supported uh, so uh, uh, we're paying the price for that there's nothing we can do about it anymore uh, you know we should have uh, one of the things i noticed in 2019 uh, when i was there was how siloized the taliban commanders were because you remember the last time the taliban became too powerful for pakistan's own liking they started taking independent decisions and things like that which the pakistanis never wanted now uh they've learned their lesson and they're keeping them siloized so they're keeping them the way they have a sort of jihad menagerie lashkar e toiba hizbul mujahideen etc 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 who they can provoke later on to fight each other and kill each other they're doing very much the same thing out there 
local commanders hate other local commanders. They don't talk to uh, other commanders unless they're coerced because their families are being held hostage in Pakistan or something like that. Uh, uh, they don't really listen to Pakistan. Uh, this was something we should have utilized. And the Americans told us to do it. The Americans made their own fair share of mistake. You know, if you're going to take a pre-industrial, uh, sedentary, pastoral society that's extremely violent, that has resource shortages, and those resource shortages mean one tribe attacks the other tribe for women and livestock and grain every uh, two, three years, uh, and kills and running blood feuds. In this country, you wanted to have a democracy with equal rights for women and gay and lesbian rights and shit like that. You have to be on some serious, I mean, this is beyond cocaine. This is beyond heroin. This is some kind of, uh, you know, designer drug. It's some crystal meth or something, some super crystal meth of some kind that you had to be snorting. But once the Americans realized that mistake, what did India do? We went on with this nonsense that we're not good. There is no such thing as good Taliban, bad Taliban over and over because I was part of some of those track twos where this was discussed. They went on saying, look, we're just saying good Taliban, bad Taliban as a rule. The thing is, they are siloized. We need to start saying divide and rule. India went on saying no, 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 no. So we also screwed up out there. Very, very bad. We should have started because if Pakistan is siloizing them, you use it to play divide and rule. What stops you from uh, playing divide and rule? So there was that. And then, of course, there's the whole garbage Washington think tank brigade, you know, which went on making uh, apologias for Pakistan. Uh, you know, uh, uh, you can't bomb Pakistan. You can't hold Pakistan to account. So in this entire process, when has Pakistan ever been held to account? Zero. And, you know, Pakistan is the root of the problem. So it, it was a bit like going to the doctor with jaundice. Uh, and instead of him giving you something to treat your liver, he instead, you know, recommends uh, Chanel or Yves Saint Laurent Foundation because your eyes and your face are going so yellow. He'll just say, dab some on and cover up the yellowness of the skin. Um, so, you know, the compound mistakes, I don't think India has the role to play right now, except we lick our wounds, see what plays out, and then uh, uh, do what we need to. Remember, we did manage to have a friendly Afghanistan the last 20 years. Uh, in spite of having a hostile Afghanistan for two, three years before that under Taliban rule. Uh, the Mujahideen initially hated India because they supported the Soviet Union, but now they all have their second homes in Delhi. So uh, it, it's, uh, let's wait and watch. Let's wait and watch. Uh, the one thing we can always depend on is Pakistan's stupidity and its ability to overplay its hand. So even if we lose today, don't lose hope. Uh, right. So let's talk about India's investments in Afghanistan. So basically, you don't invest somewhere without carefully evaluating and calculating the return on investment. So what was the expected or hoped for return on investment? I mean, these investments are supposed to benefit the people of India and the nation. So were these investments or were they merely gestures of goodwill? Uh, okay, so first of all, they meant investments in the commercial sense of the word. They were never meant to bring any kind of profit to India. Uh, they were meant to bring profit to the people of Afghanistan. Uh, their local agricultural projects, there were dams and things like that. And the whole point of it was, and this is where India has been quite smart, it was meant to benefit the Afghan people uh, and reinforce the government. 
So in one aspect, it failed in the government reinforcement, but in the other, in benefiting the Afghan people, it will it has succeeded. It has succeeded spectacularly. It will continue to succeed. There are still people. Uh, I've spoken to several Taliban commanders who have been touched personally. Their families have been touched personally by some Indian agricultural project or the other. Uh, the uh, commander uh, in uh, Ghor, for example, uh, was it Ghor or was it Ghazni? I forget. Uh, uh, his family farm gets uh, water from an Indian project. He knows about it. Uh, he's always been grateful to India for it and things like that. And of course, you know, we had a round where we were both uh, jointly spitting on Pakistan. Harami uh, hai, kutte hai, this, that, whatever. It was translated. He couldn't really speak too much Hindi. He, 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 he knew his Mabap ki galis huh? for some strange reason. I don't know how, but he definitely knew those. Uh, uh, now, the thing is, what it gives you is, it gives you a very significant human in Can't hear you. Okay, let's wait for a couple of minutes for Abhijit to return. Very interesting story there. Okay, he's back. Can you hear me? Okay. I can hear you, yes. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, good. Sorry, yes. uh, I got a call in because I'm on my phone. What it does is it cuts out uh, everything else. Sorry. Okay. Uh, so what happened was, uh, you know, uh, we will have a huge pool of goodwill in Afghanistan. Except for Kandahar, and maybe some adjoining areas where I experienced a lot of hostility. Uh, there's not a single Afghan I've met who didn't like India and hated Pakistan. So now the question is, how do you weaponize that? How do you utilize that? How do you monetize it and make it actionable? Uh, we lost out on that. And you know, this is what I've been saying since 2019, since going there and talking to people that, you know, stop going. The problem with our folks is, they only read American or British assessments and they put their own layer of interpretation on it. There is no primary intelligence connection. If they'd bothered with primary intelligence connection, they would have seen these silos and our ability to play divide and rule with them. They did not. Even when the Americans and Brits tried telling us there is this opportunity to play divide and rule, I mean, who would know divide and rule better than the Americans and Brits, right? Uh, we still did not. So it was a well of a wellspring of goodwill that we squandered, we did not utilize, uh, it's fine, it's fine. Uh, uh, now let's lick our wounds, uh, everything's not lost. Uh, you know, you can still use it to uh, uh, create a, a, a civil war situation out there. I know it's a horrible thing to say, but uh, stable Afghanistan is no longer in our interest. Uh, now it must burn, it must continue to burn because uh, uh, Pakistani troops need to be bogged down there. The last thing we need is peace in Afghanistan so that uh, the fighters there, the mujahids there get transferred to the Indian border uh, to start off something in Kashmir. So are the Taliban still Pakistan's creature or are they their own creature? I mean, do they have a will of their own? Hmm. Uh, they do have a will of their own which is why they've been siloized. So they have a very powerful way of their own. The question is, uh, uh, you know, Pakistan is extremely good at dividing up the enemy 
and then dealing with them piecemeal. See, we've seen this in Kashmir, where we never seem to learn our lessons and this government is making the same mistakes that previous governments have made, which is what? You know, we used to, under the Dulat plan, we used to keep paying all these militant leaders to come over and become our bombs, which is why, you know, every uh, big shopping mall in Srinagar is owned by a former militant. Uh, every former militant has some posh house in, uh, uh, oh, what's that road called? I forget the posh road, the Amrita Shergil Marg of Srinagar, I guess. Uh, uh, I, I forget the name, but uh, uh, they have their house there. But uh, what Pakistan has is that it, it never hesitates to use both carrots and sticks. The Indian state will not eliminate a militant leader once he has surrendered and uh, embraced back, uh, back to Indica. The Pakistanis don't give a shit. They'll kill you off when they feel you are no longer useful to them. That's a very powerful motivator. You're an Indian state that doesn't know how to use sticks and a Pakistani state that knows how to apply very few carrots, but a huge array of sticks. So, uh, and you know, we sit down and pretend that a lot of these leaders are still legitimate. We pretend we give them political power and whatnot, uh, give them meetings with the prime minister and what, what have you. The Pakistanis don't make that mistake. They do micromanagement very well. Uh, the problem with Pakistan, of course, is they never see the macro. Uh, so, you know, they're so good at micromanagement, but look at Pakistan. Pakistan is as much of a security basket case with bombs going off in cities and places like that uh, as Afghanistan is. It's a garrison state with a, a perpetual siege. And if they think that this victory of theirs isn't going to, you know, sort of ricochet back on them, uh, they're sadly mistaken because a lot of Pakistanis, when you talk to them in private, they see that they've kind of lost the battle against terrorism, that now it's the tail that wags the dog, not the dog wagging the tail. They're desperately trying to play a rear guard action, and now they just add it to their own problems in this quest for strategic depth or whatever it is. Uh, they still don't realize what's the price they're going to have to pay for. So let's talk about the India-US relationship. What is this relationship right, right now, like right now in 21? Because when you see US joint statements with Pakistan, they talk about shared interests. But with India, it's all about shared values. So we know what takes precedence. It's always interests over values. So yes. what is the Indian-US relationship like? What's going on? Uh, look, it's it's on decent ground. It's, it's not going down the drain. Like a lot of us thought that, you know, uh, the kind of... Uh, loonies that had come into government, it was going to go down the drain. That hasn't happened. If you look at Secretary uh, Blinken's visit, it was actually extremely well managed. Surprise, surprise. Uh, uh, he did not rub any... Uh, he, uh, In fact, all the NGO types that had gone to meet him came back uh, with hemorrhoids because uh, uh, he hadn't really listened to them at all. Uh, uh, he had actually made India's case for us at that particular meeting. So it's fine. Even things like, say, CATSA sanctions, uh, you know, because they're like the S-400 missile system. Uh, from what I've heard, they've made a very convincing case and uh, uh, it's not really going to happen. Uh, if it happens, there must be some last-minute lobbying by the Pakistan lobby out there for those sanctions to eventuate. 
the quad is going pretty damn well by uh, our estimate uh, by the Australian estimate as well so that's not going anywhere that's the bigger game that they're not losing sight of as long as they don't lose sight of China uh, we're on good ground we're on good ground so it's it's not as bad as some people would like it out to be and in fact you know talk of shared values why is that happening it's happening because you have a whole campaign by the new york times and things like that saying we do not have shared values which is why america needs to clamp down on india uh, so every time they restate shared values it's not so much about interests over uh, 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 values it's more about correcting the narrative back home and refuting it so is the us a declining power now is it in terminal decline and is china's rise unstoppable i mean is it china's time now well no it isn't china's time it's both in decline uh you know this is uh think of this as being a bit like uh, uh how should we put this uh, the uh, a bronze age collapse uh, where it was both the hittites and uh, uh, middle dynasty Egypt, uh, sorry, new new dynasty Egypt collapsing, and uh, the Bronze Age people taking over. Or a better, more uh, recent example would be, uh, 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 you know, how Rome and Persia were the paramount powers, and they fought each other to a standstill, and the Arabs came and smashed both of them. So it, we're waiting for the Arab tribes to come out of the desert and smash both the old superpowers in that sense. Let's say Dubai. Uh, in Beijing, what you see is there are new controls on businesses. Businesses have become uh, extremely unsafe. They they no longer feel comfortable investing in China uh, because you know you never know when you're going to get picked up and carted off to jail and given a eleven year sentence for spying the way the Canadian was and things like that. So that is becoming a no go zone for uh, a lot of companies out there. Now remember the thing is. In the early manufacturing age, the state gains an unprecedented uh, pre-industrial states. The state doesn't have that much agency. Enforcement deficits states all of them. It is industrialization that enables you to build a high state that can control, effectively control its bureaucracy and the enforcement. And when you enter the information age, because manufacturing is so disruptive, uh, socially disruptive, you need a strong state to control all the centrifugal forces. Uh, then when you enter the information age, the state takes a backseat and private corporations take the uh, uh, helm. Now, what you're seeing here is two different trajectories. They're both industrialized, both America and China have industrialized. The problem is China isn't allowing the kind of industrial freedom required to take China into the information age. Uh, where, you know, Alibaba has been targeted, uh, Jack Ma has been targeted, lots of other companies have been targeted. So this is going to be the end. They'll maybe reach about $13,000, $14,000 per capita, but that it will get capped off out there. They are not going to go beyond that anymore. Uh, so that is the uh, capping of China. With America, it's different. It's that private companies have gained so much power that it's gone back to the feudal age where the state counts for nothing and private companies are running their own agenda. Uh, in this case, the thought control the, comes from CRT, from critical race theory and political correctness and things like that, which have essentially terrorized 
the U.S. workforce into no longer being capable of the kind of innovation that they once were. So is America, in, and because this entire CRT mob has executed an institutional capture of the uh, uh, state powers of America, like, you know, all certification now has to be CRT compliant and crap like that. Uh, America is now in terminal decline for a different but similar set of reasons to China. But, you know, we, like I said, we need to, this is the Sassanid Empire versus the Byzantine Empire. We need to watch out for the Arabs now. Who the Arabs will be, I don't know. That's the big question. Who are the Arabs? So does India have a better alternative model to offer to the world? No. Uh, because our thing is, we never do a correct ways and means study. We have a very high opinion of ourselves, which is not shared by anybody else. Uh, and, you know, these uh, little throwaway compliments that we get, uh, uh, you know, I mean, if somebody, I mean, look at my face, uh, chubby, bald, squeaky voice, uh, uh, you know, dressed like uh, a, a complete uh, 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 hobo or uh, slum dweller or whatever. If somebody comes and, you know, tells me, oh, Abhijit, you're the most handsome, sexy man I've ever met, that epitome of manhood, you're like Michelangelo's David and this and that, I'll be like... Uh, yeah, right. I mean, you know, I've got my reality check in place. Uh, Indians aren't like that. Uh, Indians are like, uh, they look and talk like Abhijit Mitra and they believe people, when people come and tell Abhijit Mitra that you look like Michael and you're the, you're the closest to perfection, to human perfection uh, of male beauty uh, that has ever happened since Michelangelo's date. They will actually believe that. Uh, you look at Indian policy. So, you know, there was a new education policy that uh, focused on problem solving over learn by road. Your problem is one of scale. In a scale problem, you have to sort it out through learn by road. You can't do problem solving. Problem solving is highly subjective. It doesn't work on that kind of scale. And yet they've gone with that policy, which, mind you, nobody in the commentariat actually called out. They called out the uh, you know, the subject matter of the syllabuses and things like that, but nobody actually questioned the fact, not the Congress, not the left, not the right, but the fact that how are you find a problem-solving teacher force? You know, uh, all your teachers have been brought up and learned by rote. How are you going to train them? You know, training up a teacher to even teach problem-solving requires a huge capital investment in teachers. How are you going to do that? See, so, you know, we have all these, and how are you going to get to, say, a $5 trillion economy with such a poorly trained workforce? So nobody actually does the ways and means study in India. We love cutting and pasting, and invariably, we cut and paste all the wrong answers. You know, it's like if somebody asks you uh, in the uh, ex leaked exam sheet that you got, uh, uh, the uh, uh, question number 10 was, what is 2 plus 2? Uh, but in the actual paper, somebody switched the uh, sequence and they asked you what's 4 plus 4. You still in cut and pasted the answer for what is 2 plus 2 on there. That's what we tend to do. We're very bad at cutting and pasting. You know, China industrially is kind of like that. They, they understand the how when they steal technology. They don't understand the why. So uh, as long as you don't understand the first principles, you can't really do too much damage in one. In India, the cut and paste policies are very similar. It's kind of copycat of what the West does without 
understanding what the context is. We ask the wrong questions, we answer the wrong questions, and very frequently we choose the worst examples. So what's the cause of this? Why do we produce such... Is, is, the, is it a question of leadership? What needs to change? It's a question of leadership. It's a question of the kind of policy inputs that the leadership gets. Uh, you know, if you've got a generalist bureaucracy that has been trained in learn by rote, that have no specialization, that have never had a specialization in their life. They've come out of college. They've never had any work experience. Uh, they get straight into the bureaucracy and that's it. Uh, they're set for life. Uh, and they are expected to manage an extremely complex industrial and economic environment that even seasoned experts don't know how to manage. Uh, you know, it's asking for a bit too much. Now, the thing is, a smart person should know their own limitations and they should know uh, what I call a bullshit meter. You don't need to know everything, but you need to know who's bullshitting you and who's not. Uh, our political executive doesn't have a bullshit meter and our uh, unelected executive uh, uh, are essentially a sort of uh, Guinness world record pile of bullshit. So between not having a bullshit meter and an excess supply of bullshit, uh, you will end up bullshit plus bullshit equals bullshit. Yeah, unfortunately, unfortunately, yeah. So let's go back to geopolitics. Uh, as America declines, what does the future hold for Israel? Hmm. Um, so Israel is on solid ground right now because they got rid of Netanyahu, who was the biggest thorn in the Democrat side. So as long as it's Naftali Bennett and Yair Lapid and people like that, they're happy with it. Uh, Benny Gantz. Uh, they're happy with that. So that relationship is fine. The thorn who was Netanyahu has been removed. Uh, the problem is I don't think Naftali Bennett understands economics as well as, you know, Netanyahu essentially is the man almost single-handedly responsible for taking Israel from a middle-income uh, country to a high-income country, to a very high-income country. Uh, Naftali does not have that in him. Naftali has a lot of good qualities, but that fundamental crony capitalism that, and crony capitalism can be a very good thing, you know, as uh, South Korea or Taiwan, Japan, uh, or uh, Israel will show you. Uh, it's a, it, it thrives. Uh, you, you can actually make a country very rich on the basis of crony capitalism. Uh, we don't. That's a different matter. But uh, they have... Uh, but anyway, Thorn is gone. So it's all good on that score. The big question is, how will Biden's approach on Iran affect this whole thing? But I can tell you the Iranian, uh, the uh, uh, Israelis, the uh, Saudis, and the uh, uh, Emiratis, they are coordinating diplomatically very, very, very carefully. So the Saudis are just throwing money where it counts. The Emiratis are playing their own brand of charm diplomacy where it counts, and the Israelis are just doing uh, what they normally do, which is bring a huge amount of political heft to play and coercion and, where necessary, you know, uh, secret porn tapes, whatever it is that the Mossad delivers for them to uh, manipulate things. 
So what's the deal with Iran right now? I mean, Iran is under sanctions, but with this new Chinese deal that they have, will they do well with that? I mean, what is the long-term uh, game plan there? I mean, what is Iran's geopolitical ambitions? Would a nuclear-armed Iran be good for the neighborhood? It definitely would be good for the neighborhood. Uh, there's an argument that if Iran goes nuclear, then it's need to support that fundamental insecurity, why it supports terrorism across uh, uh, the region will go away. That's not the way things work. Uh, what happened with Pakistan? Once Pakistan got nuclear weapons, did its uh, instinct for terrorism go away? No, because it's like a man-eating tiger that's tasted blood, right? So terrorism will continue, but it will continue under the shield of a, a, a nuclear umbrella, which is never good for the region because then you really can't take action against Iran, number one. Number two, uh, Raisi, the new president, will drive a very hard deal. I don't know why they chose Raisi, but Raisi is kind of the worst person they, should, they would have chosen to make a deal. And I think they chose it deliberately. They chose an hardliner because their negotiating position now is going to be, hey, we lived up to the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal. We just call it the Iran nuclear deal. The JCPOA is technical mumbo jumbo. Uh, uh, and you did not. The Americans unilaterally withdrew. You owe us compensation for the four years we lost. So you're going to fucking pay us back this interest. And there's nobody better than Raisi to pull off that act. So now they're going to get a arm and a year from the, uh, uh, an arm and a leg from the Americans. Is Biden in a position to do that? I don't know, but I can tell you the Saudis, uh, Emiratis, and the Israelis, they're all storing up their bullets for that particular fight when Biden actually goes into, uh, back into the Iran nuclear deal again. And what about the China-Iran nuclear deal? What does that bode for That's diplomacy? Got, look, uh, the Iran-China nuclear deal isn't going to go anywhere uh, because if they do, it is going to get sanctioned immediately, which China will not want, number one. Number two, uh, the Iranians know the Chinese very well. Have you ever seen any major project, that, unlike Pakistan, who is dumb, who get into problematic situations they don't know how to get out of? Uh, have you tell me where have you seen the Iranians ever get into a tight embrace with the Chinese? Where have they ever opened up their jugular for the Chinese? Even during the last round of sanctions before the Iran nuclear deal, did you see them get cozy with the Chinese? No, they understand the Chinese extremely well. They are not going to hand over their nuclear jugular to the Chinese and let the Chinese set up nuclear power plants because they also have experience with Chinese uh, nuclear power plants. Like for example, the Chinese nuclear power plants in Pakistan, most of them don't actually even work properly. The ones that are meant for nuclear weapons do work, but the rest don't really stand up to anything. So the Iranians know in private, when you talk to them, they know what uh, the Chinese bring to the table. Talking about India now, the Act East policy that we have, that we have or had, I don't know if it is still there. What happened to it? I mean, did we have any concrete objectives, any military, economic, or geopolitical objectives? What actions have been taken, and what happened to it? 
Um, so you remember the uh, Look East policy when it was called Look East was started off because India wanted to reorient its entire uh, uh, outlook uh, from being very Occidental centric to being an Oriental centric thing. And it was initiated when there was a, a, a huge amount of growth happening in India. Since then, our growth has been less than spectacular. It's not, uh, nobody's really talking about the India growth story anymore or the great potential for growth in India and things like that. So that stalled quite a bit. Militarily, again, we haven't really uh, uh, integrated with Southeast Asian militaries the way we should have. Diplomatically, we're still pretty clueless. You know, we still kind of outsource our ASEAN policy to Singapore. Singapore, for all effects and purposes, runs our ASEAN policy. So, uh, uh, you know, you can change it to act East policy. But again, this is like, uh, these are slogans which this government is very good at, make in India, uh, which then uh, fails completely and you change it to Atmanirbhar Bharat without actually changing anything. Uh, with the same clown in uh, charge, uh, so nothing's going to happen, Amitabh Kant. Uh, you have a, a $5 trillion economy without looking at the basic fundamentals of how you're going to get there. So again, nothing's going to happen. So this, this is this change of nomenclature from look east to act east. It only works, and it works very well if your economy is booming. If your economy is not booming, forget about it. At 9 to 10% growth, you'll, you'll be doing very, very well. At 6 to 7% growth, it's even uh, even up to 8% growth, you're not really going to get the kind of traction you need. Uh, especially not most of your FDI is coming from Mauritius. Because everybody knows what kind of money comes in from Mauritius. And talking about the economy, the past two years we've had no growth whatsoever. So, is is the has the policy been good of of locking down the entire country for a year and a half? I mean, does it make any sense to you? See, this is one of those things where you know it's very easy to be unfair to the government. The question was how many people were going to die, or the opportunity cost where how many people were going to die because of the economy. So it was uh, who who. What is going to kill more people, COVID or the shutting down of the economy, right? So there's no right answers to it in retrospect. Could it have been better managed? Yes. Uh, but did it have to happen? It's very easy to say no now with the benefit of hindsight. But uh, at that point of time, it probably did have to happen. So, you know, we can't have a retrospective criticism of the government for something that, uh, was extremely, extremely scary, number one. Uh, number two, uh, we've had growth. I mean, we've had growth, but it's lackluster growth. We're back to the Hindu rate of growth in that sense. Uh, don't go by this year and the next year because, you know, when you decline rapidly then and when growth comes back to normal, it seems like you've picked up the same level, which you have not. Uh, so uh, ignore that. The, the, the real test of what happens with our economy starts in 20, 23, 24, and places like that. Right. Now, about diplomacy, India's diplomacy and engagement with the world. I uh, mean, Abhi, India's I'll diplomatic... I'll have to go now. Yeah. Okay, no problem. I'll have to go. No problem. So, go ahead. Okay. Last question, and let's go. 
what do you think of india's tiny diplomatic core i mean does india need to increase its diplomatic core in order to engage with the world properly right so it, it's not just increase the diplomatic core why do we need to increase uh, the diplomatic core it's so that they actually gain primary intelligence uh, you know this uh, you, you need to increase the diplomatic uh, core's numbers you need to retrain them properly because right now they do not gather information they don't archive information and they don't hand it over do you know how many times i've had to make introductions in dc or moscow for certain people because the previous person who held the post did hand over all their contacts and things like that or their accumulated knowledge it tends to be so heavily personalized uh, uh, you know you, you can have complete flip flops of policy overnight uh, or flip flops of engagement overnight it's very very problematic so uh, you know there's a certain discipline required uh, there's a certain uh, uh, you know rigor to primary uh, uh, research within that uh, uh, this thing that's required there is a need to standardize policies uh, standardize ambassadorial temperament and training uh, uh, and priorities and set and this is what policy planning was meant to do but it never did ultimately uh, there's a lot of things you have to do there is a huge amount of internal reform that needs to happen in addition to increasing the numbers numbers by themselves aren't going to solve the problem because you know like uh, uh, gamal abdel nasser used to say 50 zeros still makes a zero uh, so you know you can you've got 700 uh, uh, zeros right now uh, if you increase it to 3000 zeros you're still going to get a zero you need to make them a five or six or seven in which case they can have uh, a very effective and mind you the numbers actually came down and the congress government to some 720 730 people now went down to 690 people so we're actually smaller than the singapore diplomatic corps that's amazing all right abhijit thank you so much thank you for your time really enjoyed this discussion and i Anytime, look forward to seeing you later thank you so much thank you it was all Bye. mine sorry, sorry for all the uh, interruptions and all of that because i'm away from home so uh, great chatting with you buddy pleasure was all mine take care Thank you. Bye.